Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the Russian destruction of the ruined theatre in Mariupol. We look at the recent car bomb in Militopol, and we compare Volodymyr Zelensky's trip to Washington to Winston Churchill's visit to the White House at the height of the Second World War in December 1941. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 23rd of December, day 303. Today... To discuss the most recent events in Ukraine and around the world, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, and our senior reporter and history correspondent, Daniel Kapuro. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So there's been a, a car bomb, by the look of it, in Militopol. So this is a southern port city, uh, Russian-occupied at the moment, port city of Militopol. It, there are... Reports suggesting that there are two people in the car injured, one possibly lost a limb, and reports suggesting that they might be FSB, so Russian um, security agents. However, I can't find where that claim has come from, that they're that they're FSB. So Ivan Fedorov, who is the exiled Ukrainian mayor of Militopol, he's confirmed the explosion on his Telegram channel, but said the identity of the victims was still being, quote, clarified so I've yet to see anywhere that, that, have, that have said it's FSB. However, this does fit a pattern in that area of, of Ukraine. There have been a number of attacks by partisans or, uh, you know, who, we, we, don't, we don't know who they are. I mean, there's some suggestion it's Ukrainian special forces. Very unlikely, we think, these, these are civilian partisans. So we don't, we don't really know, but that is um, that has happened in the last 24 hours. I mean, Militopol is the area where the main bridge, you might remember this a couple of weeks ago, the main bridge was hit by unexplained explosions. Um, and this is one of the bridges across to, on that land corridor down through to through to Crimea that we know is absolutely vital to Putin for um, uh, for support of, of Russian forces in, in Crimea. So that bridge was hit recently uh, and rendered it virtually impassable and certainly, by the look of it, impassable to heavy equipment, tanks and, and artillery and what have you. 
Um, elsewhere, uh, in Mariupol, so this is slightly further to the east along the, along the coast, uh, uh, Russian forces have been occupying, occupying uh, Mariupol since earlier in this year. Uh, earlier this year, I started to dismantle the, dra- the, the theatre, the main theatre there, where, where reports are suggesting up to 600 were killed in a strike in March. No one knows for sure because they've just not been able to get in there. And Russia are now, well, they put up a load of screens around it quite early on. So the, so the locals that were still there in the city, thought to number some tens of thousands, just couldn't see what, what was happening there. However, footage that's on social media show um, you know, hardware diggers and what have you demolishing the, the last of the uh, of the of the, the walls that are standing uh, and there's suggestions that this is just eradicating the you know, evidence of war crimes and, and so on and so forth but we shall um, well, I don't know if we will see actually I mean it was bombed on March the 16th and there were it was being used to, to house civilians um, anywhere from a dozen to 600 has been named as or been the kind of numbers that have been uh, discussed around the people that were that were in there. Um, I'll leave it. I think Dan's going to talk a little bit more about that shortly. Uh, just two more, two more quickies on the news. So, Russian, the Russian installed uh, official in the Zaporizhia region, which hosts obviously the nuclear power plant there. He said today that shelling of the nuclear power plant had quote almost stopped. Uh, uh, he was speaking on Russian state television, and he said that Russian troops would not leave the nuclear plant. It would never return to Ukrainian control. Fine. Um, you, know, you can say what he likes. It's it's all a bit of a muchness. But the fact, I mean, so it's good and bad, right? That, that nobody wants it to be to be shelled. It's hotly disputed where, where that fire is coming from. Um, there's no reason for those forces to be there. It's a stupid place to put them unless you are using it as a base uh, for your own military ends, which is um, extremely reckless bordering on a war crime, I would think, using civilian infrastructure for that uh, for those means. And finally, the Wagner Group. So uh, last night, uh, John Kirby, White House National Security Spokesman, said that North Korea, that he confirmed a delivery last month from North Korea uh, of, of small arms, infantry rockets, missiles, um, etc., to uh, to Wagner, Russian, the paramilitary group funded, we think, run by Evgeny Prigozhin. Wagner Group largely been contained in the centre of the Donbass, particularly around the city of Bakhmut. And John Kirby said that the US is going to impose further sanctions on the group because this kind of sale of you know, military hardware to a civilian firm, uh, the, the type of weapons that have been that have been sold, uh, go against the uh, it's in violation of the UN Security Council resolutions. Um, he said, so Mr. Kirby, sorry, is saying the Wagner Group is spending more than 100 million dollars each month on its uh, on its Ukraine operations and is seeking to set itself up as a as a rival as a separate power base a rival to the to the established Russian military um we spoke before about any political ambition for Yevgeny Prigozhin and, and other sort of warlords like um Kadyrov for example the Chechen leader and uh, so it's interesting here that uh, that Russia's well that sorry the US is commenting on Russian uh, supply from North Korea for their for their paramilitary forces uh, a bit more later on on the um, on the forty five billion dollar package from from the US, but I'll uh, I'll let others jump in. Thanks very much for all of that, Dom. Dan, I know you've got notes on almost all of the stories we've just talked about, but can we bring you in first on this story on the Wagner Group? Um, why would North Korea do something like this? Why 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 are they funding the, the Wagner Group in in Russia? Yeah, it's interesting with North Korea supplying these weapons. So obviously, we've seen states that have poor relations with the West, like Iran supplying Russia with with weapons. 
Um, but this is a slightly different case, and you've got them supplying them directly to a group of mercenaries. But North Korea is sort of a particularly interesting uh, country when it comes to this stuff. It is, uh, in a lot of ways, to all intents and purposes, a, a mafia. It's an illustration of what happens when you really are cut off entirely from the global economy. You know, as much as there are sanctions on Russia, some business is still going ahead, as we've seen with, with gas and oil. But certain countries, North Korea being the prime example, really are just completely cut off. The main thing propping it up is, is Chinese support. But obviously it has to survive. They have to give elite lifestyles to the elite. And most importantly, they have to get access to high-tech equipment, to technology, and to US dollars, which are essential for buying certain things that are needed in North Korea, and particularly things that the elite like. And so what we've seen in North Korea is that it has become this mafia state and it's involved in, it's believed to be involved in any number of criminal activities effectively sponsored by the state. So, um, you know, the regular stuff like uh, gun running, drug smuggling, all these kind of things, then to the more obscure. I mean, a few years ago, The Telegraph reported on the fact that North Korean diplomats in Africa had been involved in wildlife smuggling and in ivory smuggling. Um, and basically, the North Korean government will do anything it can to get its hands on hard currency to prop up what is a really decrepit economy and to keep its elite happy and sweet. And I think you can see that in the Wagner deal, where it's just a very easy way for them to get hold of, of foreign currency and hard cash for one of the few things that actually North Korea does have decent supplies of, which is uh, weapons. Thanks, Dan. Uh, Dom has given us the news of, of the destruction of the, the, the bomb theatre in Mariupol. What I'd quite like you to do as our history correspondent is put this erasure of, uh, of war crimes. I mean, this is, this is what we saw earlier in the, in the year, as Dom said, that this bombing of the theatre which, and killing of hundreds of civilians. I mean, we, we, it's, one of, it's one of the sort of images of the war, isn't it? The, the, the word children outside on, in front of this to deter Russian aviation from bombing it. And actually, they went ahead and did it anyway. Now this crime scene has been, is being removed. Can you put that into context for us in, in Russian military history, looking back to the Red Army as well? Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think What's going on here, you know, we, we have this um, perhaps sort of sanitized understanding of, of what happens with, with war crimes and these things that, you know, it's very difficult to cover up when you have killed hundreds of people, thousands of people, and that eventually when the good guys win, these things are uncovered and the evidence is there and it's very easy to say exactly what happened and who did it and who's responsible and, and put them on trial. And the reality, of course, is, is always much, much messier and, and sort of real politique and pragmatism gets in the way. You know, you certainly saw that with uh, Nazi war crimes at the end of the Second World War that a lot of um, perpetrators, really, but uh, people maybe on the edge of these things who, at least in the early years of the Cold War, were, were let back into the establishment and society, uh, no questions asked, because it was useful and convenient. Whether or not that will happen with Russia at the end of this war is, is sort of still to be seen. But I think that in terms of covering up and seeing this demolition of, of the theatre, you know, this this war is um, is very different to, to ones we've seen previously, where obviously we have satellite imagery. We're all able to see what's happened to, to the theatre. You can see in satellite images the word deity, um, you know, Russian for children on the front in huge, enormous letters. So the West's able to see what happened, even if we don't know the truth of what's Gone, it, gone on within the building and how many people were really in there. And that will be an enormous undertaking to, to find out what really happened. But one of the sort of historic examples, I think, that immediately springs to mind and, and one that will be very familiar, I think, certainly to our listeners in, in Eastern Europe, is, is the, uh, the Katyn massacre of, of the um, early stages of the Second World War. It's not always particularly well known in the West. It's a very, very brief potted history. But uh, after the, um, 
the Nazi-Soviet pact. Everyone remembers that uh, the Germans invaded Western Poland. They tend to forget that Eastern Poland was invaded by the Soviet Union. And the intelligentsia and the officer class of the Polish army were rounded up in woods, which are, which are now, I believe, in, in Belarus. Do correct me if I'm wrong. And were summarily executed. I think that the, the rough figure is, is 22,000. You know, an, an entire class of, of uh, intelligentsia of, of the future leaders of, of Poland was wiped out over a few over a few weeks. I know that listeners, regular listeners will have heard earlier in, in this week about the executed Renaissance with, with Ukraine uh, during the Great Purge, where Stalin did something very similar to the Ukrainians and, and tried to obliterate um, their intelligentsia. But yeah, so this, this happened in, in uh, 1940 in Poland. And then what happened afterwards? Well, you know, there wasn't any outside access to what was going on. No one really knew that it had happened apart from Poles who weren't able to get the news out. But then, of course, the, the front moved. Um, and I believe 1943, German forces uncovered these enormous mass graves in, in, in the woods and reported it. And obviously for them, it was this great propaganda coup where they could point to the, to the horrors of the Red Army and the Soviet Union and, and try and show that the West, that the Allies were enormously hypocritical for, for allying themselves with the Soviet And for convenience, the United States in particular, but Britain to an extent sort of uh, helped or at least turned a blind eye to the cover-up. Winston Churchill was adamant that the Red Cross should not be allowed to go to Katyn uh, to investigate because on the basis that they wouldn't be able to investigate freely, that the Nazis would force them into producing a propaganda report. And it was sort of deliberately, the waters were deliberately, and, you know, there were suggestions that the, the Nazis had done this themselves, you know, a sort of false flag operation to then, to then blame the Soviets. The, the, the Nazis actually pulled a couple of American POWs out of, out of uh, a camp and sent them to Katyn to kind of give some legitimacy to their claims. And uh, those, uh, those two prisoners then later secretly managed to get in touch with Washington and tell them that, no, actually it was true and they were not under pressure that it was the case that this was almost certainly done by the, the Red Army. After the war in the, in the 1950s, there were sort of big repercussions for this in the West for, you know, why they had helped cover it up. But despite that, despite the fact that in the 50s, Westerners kind of came to realise what had actually happened, that it was in fact the, the Red Army and, and you know, the wolf um, was, was uh, removed from their eyes by the reality of the Cold War. The Cold War also meant that the real truth of what happened there was, was suppressed and, and was unable to be told. And of course, in Poland, there was very, very strict censorship around this. People were not allowed to, to even mention the word. And perhaps the most cynical thing that the, uh, that the Soviet Union did was that, um, you know, the, the Eastern War was incredible. Eastern Front was incredibly brutal. There were massacres of, of entire villages all the time, particularly in, in uh, Belarus. And uh, any one of these could have been memorialized and turned into kind of the emblematic, the, the emblematic village that would be the one around which commemorations would be focused. But uh, the Soviet government deliberately chose a place called Khatyn, which to Westerners at least, or anyone sort of not, not familiar with Slavic languages, is really not very different to Khatyn, you know, similar spelling. And, you know, the historian Norman Davis has sort of done research and argued that this was deeply, deeply cynical and deliberate a- attempt to basically confuse anyone who, who might try and look up the Katyn massacre and understand what had happened. And, and even to this day, you know, there's this huge memorial in, in Khatyn in, in, in Belarus, and it does muddy the waters. And of course, it wasn't until Glasnost and Perestroika that the Soviet Union really kind of admitted what happened and opened up the archives, and, and Gorbachev revealed the orders from the NKVD, the secret police, to, to commit the massacre. But yeah, so sort of, you know, a grim, a grim tale all around, and, and one that is uh, a very important story in the um, 
in Polish history, but it's kind of a reminder of the fact that uh, you know these things are never clear cut. It's not the case that um, you know the war crime happens, the good guys turn up, they investigate, and everything is revealed to be true. Often there's there's very long fights and lots of difficulty in in, in documenting this, and 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 even um, after the war, you know people do their best to to muddy the waters and to confuse things, and and so. You know, the question is what what will we actually you know what will investigators find, hopefully when they're when they're finally able to visit the scene, and and uh, what will be left, what evidence will be left, and, and will we ever be able to find out what really happened there? Well, thank you very much uh, for that, Dan. Just just wanted your thoughts on this possible uh, partisan strike in Melitopol that Dom told us about earlier. This 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 car bomb that's gone off and killed two potential FSB agents. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's it's been, from what I understand, it's been one of the more active areas of, of uh, partisan warfare and relatively successful partisan warfare. Obviously, on that front, it's been very hard to find out what, what's going on, quite rightly, and, and it's being kept very secret. But I think, again, and, and, and perhaps sticking to slightly gloomy subjects here, but... Um, you know, we, we've we've heard again about how, when, hopefully, when um, these sort of eastern regions of Ukraine are liberated, the chances are we will find evidence of, of, of really quite um, horrible things. You know, many more butchers, I think, is is the way it's been uh, phrased. And I think here it, it's interesting to look at the context of of how and why uh, conflicts like these end up turning quite so so brutal and so nasty and and also you know the fact that the the Russian army previously the Soviet army and the red army before that have a a long track record of of um of war crimes which i think we've talked about before i certainly think i've talked about before on this podcast but in this case it's quite a familiar tale i think of how the sort of indisciplined unscrupulous armies uh, turn to horrendous tactics and war crimes when faced with partisan warfare and you know the in this case sort of afghanistan i think is quite illustrative of what's gone on, but you see it elsewhere, for example, in Colombia in, in the kind of the civil war that they had, where partisans effectively operate can operate freely in, in in enormous geography. So in the case of in the case of Ukraine, you've got this kind of vast area. You've got a, a willing population that wants to support the partisans and you have an understaffed Russian army that that can never possibly search enough homes or, or dominate a large enough geographical area. In Afghanistan it was, you know, um, impenetrable mountains and uh, and canyons and valleys and and in Colombia, sort of the jungle and the mountains and things like this. But, but what you see is that you get these partisan attacks, and then, in the eyes of the of the commanders, sort of unscrupulous commanders, the only way to to respond if you can't dominate the geography and you can't you can't predict where the enemy is going to be is to cut off their supplies, which means attacking civilians, which means making it uh, so costly and painful to to support a partisan that that you would never do it again. And of course, the way they do that is by massacring people. And you saw it all over Afghanistan during the, during the Soviet invasion, huge numbers of, of, and again, you know, going back to the point I was making earlier, very poorly documented and poorly understood, but these villages all across Afghanistan where local Soviet commanders would, would round up the entire village and just shoot everyone, man, woman and child. And of course, these people were, were innocent civilians. They might have given food or shelter or supplies to the partisans. They themselves were not involved in partisan warfare necessarily. But it's a way, it was the way of if you can't dominate the geography, you make, you make, you cut off the supplies and you make it uh, totally inhospitable. And you see this kind of very rapid brutalization of, of the conflict and of the civilians and of the soldiers perpetrating the crimes. So I, I, I guess the, the broader point being I wouldn't be surprised if, if uh, later on when Ukrainian troops hopefully liberate the city, the, you know, you may find worse retaliation again. Thanks very much, Dan. Dom, do you want to come in on that yourself? 
Yeah, I'll just uh, make the point there to follow on what, what Dan was saying, that this, this the, these reprisals against civilians, I mean, this is um, a feature of warfare, not all warfare, not all wars and not all the time. But, I mean, if you think about the um, the military mind here, I mean, hypervigilant is the state that these people will be in. They are, they are fearful, they are... Um, they're looking over their shoulder all the time that we they are constantly worried for their own they're in an alien landscape especially if you're an invading army you think you know how many people are actively trying to to work against you and if we look through history and if you look at back at the what the car bomb was in the 70s and 80s it was this 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 fearful weapon that like every potential car I mean, you know we think of belfast or you know beirut elsewhere in northern ireland elsewhere across the uk and in other other conflicts around the world, you know, every single car that you you patrol past as a soldier could be could be the one that, that goes off. So the car bomb in the seventies and eighties took on this totemic image of the of the 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 means with which a civilian population can can resist and push back and kill. And then that sort of morphed in the two thousands, kind of you know Iraq and Afghanistan years into the into the IED, the improvised explosive device. Um, erroneously called roadside bombs because they could be anywhere. It could be roads, uh, footpaths, walls, streams, anything. Um, and, you know, I remember from Afghanistan, the, the fear that this instilled in soldiers, that, that every single step could could be onto one of these things. And again, it's just that the I, the IED, what the IED was in the 2000s, I'm suggesting that the car bomb was in the, in the 70s and 80s, and it, and it just puts that fear into your mind. Well, when there are attacks from, obviously from a, from a civilian, I mean, these are all from civilians, clearly, but if there's something that speaks of a partisan movement, then I can, I can uh, it's only a short step through a, through a, through a looking glass of, of ill discipline, poorly trained, no moral centre of a, of a military force to then seek reprisals against against the civilian population so you know you can't you can't take reprisals against car bomb you can't take reprisals against an ied directly obviously you go for the network and and that's what we did but i can see how an ill-disciplined ill-equipped poorly led military force such as we've seen russia try to field in in ukraine will look at some of this partisan activity and just you know revert to historical norms and, and attack the civilian population so this is as dan said this is this is been an ever-present feature of warfare it comes from a position of fear and impotence on the part of the on the part of the russian soldiers here against what they see as a is, a, is an omnipotent and ever-present threat um from as, as they they would imagine the partisans to be to be everywhere so i think we're going to see i think we're going to see a lot more of this quite frankly well thanks dan and dom tom can i stay with you let's move away from uh some of the history and come to some of the news from this week that I think we should delve into. Dom, you've been looking more into the uh, US aid package to Ukraine, which we spoke about um, yesterday. Can you take us through what what you've seen in that package? Yeah, sure. So this was from Tuesday's announcement in in, in Washington. Uh, it was picked up by The Hill, the DC-based media outlet. And thank you, Henry, for pointing this out to me, putting me towards the detail. So I, I mentioned yesterday about the $45 billion package. Let's first of all put that into into context so this is the fourth package this year that the u.s have passed in support of ukraine so 13.6 billion in march 40 billion may 12.3 billion in september so yeah a lot a lot of money and uh for this year alone 2022 that takes the total 
military, humanitarian and economic assistance that the US have provided for Ukraine just over $110 billion. I mean, a huge, a staggering amount of money. And it, it is easy to get lost in the lost in the numbers, which is why I asked David for this opportunity just to sort of take take stock here, pause for a moment at the end of the year and uh, and sort of dig into this latest package as an example of, of what this means, because the numbers are massive and it's very easy, as I say, to get, get lost in the detail. But this $45, $45 billion dollars, announced on Tuesday, which included, as we were talking about the Patriot missile system yesterday, but let's have a look at the 45 billion. So uh, I'm going to round up just for round or round up, round down as appropriate, just for ease of ease of figures. So 12 billion to replenish US weapon stocks that have already been gifted. So that stuff that was on the shelf that the US just gave straight away to, to Ukraine military hardware. So about 12 billion there that goes out to industry, mainly US industry to, to replenish the US US military. Another $9 billion to go to the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative, which uh, is the sort of training equipment and intelligence support to Ukraine. $7 billion going to U.S.'s uh, European Command. Um, so that's their um, intelligence support, that's pay, equipment, and other, other bits and bobs. $300 million, uh, now this is very interesting, $300 million for uh, advanced nuclear reactors, reactors and advanced nuclear fuels to, to help increase Ukraine's energy security and a further $126 million um, to help Ukraine prepare for, I'm quoting here, prepare for and respond to potential nuclear and radiological incidents in Ukraine. So we've been talking about the, the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant and any, uh, you've heard Hamish Brett and Gordon speak on here many, many times um, about the, the, the threats there to the, to the nuclear power plants uh, and what, what could happen if they were, if they continue to be attacked. And so, I mean, that's a huge amount of money. There's, there's what, 426 million there to, uh, to directly for, for nuclear security, but also um, uh, responding to any potential incident. There's also uh, about two and a half billion for humanitarian needs in Ukraine, just over 13 billion in direct economic support and two and a half billion to help resettle Ukrainian uh, refugees into the US. So there's huge numbers. This bill, uh, 4,155 pages of it. It's got to be passed by the House and the Senate and signed off by President Biden. But th- there's every likelihood, I mean, that, that is going to happen before the year's end and that will be that will as i say that will lead to those numbers i've said 110 billion for the year the fourth package of multi-billion dollar um, assistance to ukraine so i just wanted to take stock here at the end of the year and and try and flesh out what this money is going on to give the show you the, the range of activity that this is it's not just a military effort it's not just economic and diplomatic there's a whole host of stuff going on there um i mean 2.4 billion to help resettle ukrainian refugees into the u.s is, is staggering i'll have to dig into that i'm not sure not quite sure how many numbers how many how many people have gone and what that support um consists i'll be really really keen to hear from any of our listeners who who have experience of this program who are maybe hosting hosting ukrainian refugees themselves be delighted delighted to speak to you um but no I, i think it's a staggering amount of money i don't use that as a as a stick to say to other countries well you know you've got to do this and you've got to do that i mean now's not not necessarily the time for that done that throughout the year as and when appropriate but i just wanted to mark here what that 45 billion dollars from tuesday um consists of of course in the light of um a new mix new mix in the house next year with um, republicans in the majority and um and these comments about blank checks and interestingly Zelensky addressed that directly yesterday by or on um on wednesday with his with his joint statement or same to the joint houses saying 
about how how responsible Ukraine is going to be with the money. I think trying to address some of those concerns that are that have been voiced and legitimately so. I mean, we need to we need to you know, look at this. Um, and they are going to be they're going to come to the fore, I think, in the new year with uh, with the Republicans in the House. But, uh, yeah, that's it for now. Just want to take a little a little moment there and uh, there'll be more to come. Well, thanks, Don, for looking uh, more in detail at some of the things announced during uh, President Zelensky's visit to Washington. Dan Kapuru, as our history correspondent, it would be very remiss of, of us not to ask you for some of your thoughts on Zelensky's visit. I mean, there were lots of comparisons drawn with former British PM Winston Churchill's visits to the US during the Second World War. And there were some criticisms of, of Zelensky that we saw from some media sources and, 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 and some others. Um, you've been looking at Churchill's visit. What, what comparisons and what differences have you found? Yeah, I think, I mean, the Churchill comparison is one that, that I think Zelensky himself is deliberately uh, playing up. He knows almost almost even more so in the, than in the United Kingdom, which sounds extraordinary, the, the US, or at least Washington, and politicians there, have this cult of, of Churchill, kind of the same one that we have here of, of kind of the greatest leader of, of all time. You know, American politicians really love it. And, and, you know, as we've seen with Zelensky, he knows his audiences. So depending on which country he's speaking to, uh, he tends to sort of tailor it to to their history, um, their finest hours and, and darkest hours and the like. But the Churchill... Uh, the Churchill well, if you like, is one he's returned to again and again. So I think, yeah, it's 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 a it's a perfectly legitimate comparison to make. And I think, I think the the most interesting and the most useful parallel when it comes to Churchill is is, you know, what is the point of a of a prime minister of a leader of war? And I think you know Zelensky's success. You know, some people have criticised him for it. I think completely wrongly. His success has been to be you know, the chief media officer, if you like, of Ukraine or the chief propagandist or however you want to see it. But he's understood that, that his role both within Ukraine and outside of Ukraine has been to to be a symbol, basically, you know, to be defiant, to say, you know, early on in the war, I'm not leaving Kiev. You know, I don't need a lift. I need ammunition, I think was the, the famous line, you know, being defiant and, and kind of channeling the Ukrainian public and being that kind of proving that you can that you can stay. You know, if the prime minister had, if the president, sorry, uh, of Ukraine had fled in those early days of the war, it would have been catastrophic for for morale. You know, if he'd followed the advice that he was that he was getting, and you know, likewise, Churchill, uh, his some of his most important impact on the war was the speeches he made, uh, the impact he had on on morale. Um, and again, the decisions he made early on in the war not to negotiate, uh, not to take the easy option and, and surrender. You know, even sort of Churchill's harshest critics, you know, there's a famous essay by Christopher Hitchens from a couple of decades ago where he really, you know, he sort of delved into all the revisionist history that, that looked at the ways in which Churchill had been exaggerated. Um, and the one thing that he really couldn't fault him on and said, you know, I've, I've looked at it again and again and I can't um, make it look any different is that, you know, darkest hour when he he chose not to take the easy option um, and he did choose to stand up and and stand up to the Nazis and, and keep Britain in the war rather than seek even a, even a temporary peace. So I think those, those, those parallels are worthwhile. And again, you know, the importance of, of traveling around and uh, being seen. I think we've discussed it this week and you've seen it in much of the media, the kind of the amazing logistics and dangers as well of, of uh, Zelensky traveling out of Ukraine and, and going to the US, you know, being escorted by uh, American fighter jets and the like. You know, Churchill was traveling all through the war constantly, lots and lots of trips throughout the full length of it. And, you know, even early on, he was 
uh, flying to Paris when it was under, you know, when it was on the brink of, of capitulation and then when the French government had withdrawn from Paris, but before it had officially surrendered, he was still flying to France, flying across the Channel. Later on in the war, he, he travelled to North America, both by ship and by plane. The Telegraph published about a decade ago some previously unseen photographs, including one of Winston Churchill at the uh, controls of his passenger plane smoking a cigar with his sunglasses. You know, and, the, and the Germans knew that this travel was happening and would have been trying their hardest, you know, would have been absolutely delighted if they'd uh, managed to, to shoot him down or, or sink one of his, his ships. And still he did it, and still he, he understood the importance of of going to Quebec, of going to the front lines to North Africa. Even after D-Day, he, he uh, sailed aboard a destroyer and apparently was delighted when it actually opened fire on some German positions. So he was, you know, he was getting fairly close to the action, um, maybe recklessly so. Um, and, and you can see with Zelensky, even in this day and age, you know, it's, it's much easier to, um, for world leaders to communicate without leaving. And, and we've seen that with the fact that even though Zelensky... This is his first trip outside of Ukraine. You know, he still managed to be interviewed by David Letterman for Netflix, and he still managed to send deliver speeches to the UN and all this stuff from from home. But the power of an in-person speech and and seeing the man in person, you know, turning up in Congress, receiving a standing ovation, delivering a, a flag from the front line—that kind of stuff matters. That that making making those Western allies feel like they're part of. Uh, the battle, part of the defiance against a dictator, I think is is really important. And you know, you saw it as you know, Churchill. One of the most important things he did was was manage the relationship with the United States, both before and after the U.S. joined the war. Yes, and, and you know, you mentioned the the criticism. You know, we've seen a, a pair of Republicans who refused to to take part in standing ovations, and, and one who who uh, even though he was in Washington, didn't go to the speech. And I think more, maybe more of the criticism has been from the public, from, from outside of Washington. How genuine all of it is, we can't say. But yeah, they focus, for example, they focus on the fact that, you know, even though he's a visiting uh, dignitary, he was wearing his kind of traditional uh, cargo trousers and, and, and combat sweater. And, you know, and there's some kind of odd criticism of, of whether that was appropriate or not. But of course, this is a wartime leader. You know, he's not, he doesn't strut around Ukraine in a suit. He wears that, he wears those clothes when he's in Ukraine. And again, to you know, uh, to to reach back for the for the Churchill comparison, one that, that Zelensky clearly wants us to make. He became very famous for wearing a jumpsuit. At the time, they were known as siren suits. So it was a sort of you know necessity is the mother of all invention. People who were getting up in the night from uh, air raid warnings in their pajamas and and the like, um, all a bit embarrassing. And then you're in the air shelter in in, in your um, in your skimpies. Uh, for want of a better word, uh, so someone invented this this onesie that was sort of vaguely formal, um, you know, had a sort of a, a belt on it and and pockets and looked vaguely suit-like. And Churchill absolutely loved his. And you know, the message of it was was twofold: one that he was in it with the rest, with everyone else. You know, he had to get up in the middle of the night and go to an air raid shelter. You know, he wasn't somehow um, above the difficulties of the war. But also, yeah, it kind of gave him this action man image, and he loved it so much that he had a pinstriped. Uh, siren suit. So, you know, actually, the way you look and the way you dress is, is as important a, a part of, of your propaganda effort, if you want to call it that, as, uh, as what you say. Thank you very much, uh, Dan, for that, for giving us some of, some of the comparisons and some of the differences between Zelensky and Churchill, a comparison that many people have made. So I thought it'd be quite good just to sort of get into it a little bit. So thank you, Dan. Uh, Dom, do you want to come in just very quickly? We've talked just in this last conversation about what happens when leaders get a bit too far forward. And it's something that, as Dan has alludicated, Churchill was very famous for doing and had to be held back on a few occasions. But also, we've seen Zelensky go to the front, go to Bakhmut just, just a few days ago. Um, and you had some thoughts on that. Would you take us through them? 
yeah, it's, I mean, it's fascinating. Where does a, a leader, where does a commander put themselves uh, on the battlefield in, in situations like this? Is the obvious balance between the, the morale boosting uh, kudos to go forward and, and meet the men and women who are um, fighting for, for, for what you're you're espousing back home and against the obvious threat of uh, you know, how, how valuable are you? I mean, you know, everyone, well, second in command is always one bullet away from command, I used to say. But, you know, even so, it'd be hu- a huge loss for your senior leaders, military, civilian, politicians, civic leaders, et cetera, et cetera, um, if, they are, if they are lost. So it's, it's always a balance. It's always fascinating to see what, what commanders, where, where commanders place themselves, what, how they feel about it. We won't really know until after, after the event and even then, we probably won't hear, but it'll be years later for for the historians among us, the sort of Capuros and their skimpsies to uh, to let us know where where Zelensky was all the time and and and, um, and what have you. But I mean, it is a fascinating subject. I just I just remember from from my experience there. I won't mention any names, but there was a a very senior uh, unit commander in British Special Forces who would go out to visit visit, visit troops in in Iraq. And uh, that's fine. You've got to go out and, and see what's going on. Got to um, sniff the wind and see exactly how, what it is on the ground. Um, but this individual would, would put himself in, in far too close to the action. I mean, go out, going out on some of the raids, stacking up at the door. I mean, it's just just incredible. And I, I know of one instance where where the director of special forces had to say say to this individual, look, you know, stop. You are you are you are wrong. You're you're doing the wrong thing here. You're you're too far over the line. Um, that that is not that is not to happen. Um, those that know know who I'm talking about. I'm not going to go any further. But it was just a, a really interesting mark that yeah, it still happens and and people people get it right, get it wrong. I mean, generally the only wrong answer is if you get killed. I, I accept that. I accept that argument to a certain degree. But you know, you are, it's not just yourself. You're putting other people potentially at risk. All these, all these things are being balanced in Zelensky's head and and others. And uh, the individual I've just just mentioned, I mean, just just you know, maybe went went a little bit too far, or or did he? I don't know. I mean, talking about it today, talking about it to you, so yeah, you know, it puts these ideas out there that the legacy of that episode lives on. So, you know, was it the right or wrong thing to do? Debate can't really see that coming up on any A level. So subject, but you know, it's an interesting, interesting idea about um, about where people uh, put themselves. But as I say, I, I know from from personal experience of a, of a director who actually had to say, "Look, chum, you you got to you got to stop all this." Thanks, Tom. Um, just one more question from me to both of you before we wrap up. Um, we're at the final broadcast before before Christmas, and we'll have a few more obviously next week before the end of the year. Don, we're not going to hear from you for the next two weeks, so I was wondering if you'd just give us briefly your sort of, you know, we've, we've been covering this this invasion now since since the beginning. We'll carry on until the end. Where do you think we are right now? Um, we've, we've talked about American aid, we've talked about the Ukrainian army, and we've talked about, you know, what might happen next year. Would you just give us your, your potted thoughts on the stage of, of the war that you think we might, we might be? Well, I mean, first and foremost, if 10 months ago, nine months ago, you had said that we would st- we would be here debating how the war is going to go in 2023 and whether or not there will be a, a further Ukrainian offensive over the winter. I mean, we would have thought you're mad. The fact that the Ukrainian Air Force is still flying, the fact that the uh, Russia's Black Sea fleet is largely confined to to port the fact that the flagship the Mosfar is at the bottom of the Black Sea uh, I mean these are just these are just staggering events to comprehend so I mean I hope that we, we've all got it out of our systems by now to think oh wow these plucky Ukrainians they can actually put up a fight I mean that 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 boat sailed a long time ago I hope for 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 all of us for most of us 
So I think what, what's going to happen now is well, we look we look through we look through the winter. So what what's happening? Ukraine is training professionally, but in much small in, in very small numbers. I training. There's a large effort here in the UK of a of a cast of I think a dozen countries now supplying instructors to train Ukraine infanteers, as in civilians, turning them to basic, giving them basic infantry training. There's a lot of training across Europe in the technical aspects, um, in the uh, you know the heavy the heavy weapons, the artillery, um, the, the as Patriot will come up. On that high Mars, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. not only in how to in how to fight these things, but how to maintain them and keep them going, which is just as important. As much as I hate to talk about logistics in that way, but it is very important. Um, so, all this stuff is going on. On the other side, Russia has largely used up its precision guided munitions. It is out of ideas. It's never had a moral centre upon which it can draw to to, to 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 encourage people to go and fight. It's having to mobilise people. It's looking like there might be another round of mobilisation in the new year or at the very least an extension to the conscript terms of service. So on the, on the one hand, you can see it just calcifying and this line that hasn't moved really since that lightning advance around um, Kharkiv in September. That's not moved much in the north. Uh, the south, again, since the withdrawal from Kharkiv, not a huge amount of movement there. And there's just been this this grinding, relentless, horrific fight in the centre around Bakhmut, which is incredibly violent. So in all likelihood, it's it's going to... It's going to calcify. The lines will calcify, and and the longer that lasts, the more there will be pressure. I would imagine internationally for some sort of accommodation, some some negotiation, which which Ukraine said just ain't ain't happening. But I think those calls will continue if the lines don't move. Now there could be there could be a, another lightning breakthrough from um, from Ukraine, and I think that is looking most likely in the um, well around the Zaporizhia area. If they were able to push down towards Melitopol on the south coast and then split off those forces that are in Crimea and in in, um, in Hezon Oblast that's just north of Crimea, split them away from the forces to the east. So sever that, that land corridor, then I think that could be absolutely pivotal because that land corridor, we think, is what, what this whole fight is all about. Um, so that could be very, very important. Um, the chances of, of Russia doing something significant is unlikely i.e pushing down through belarus very unlikely the ground really doesn't lend itself there um they tried it once didn't work last time so i don't think that kiev is going to come under significant threat from the ground again they've just not they've just not been able to manage that they've not got their act together on the combined arms way of fighting wars having all the different parts of the military orchestra working together um, so I, I can't see any any ideas or any potential great breakthrough from Russia. I think the ball very much is in is in Ukraine's court right now. Uh, whether or not they can they can get the numbers of trained of trained people um, and keep going economically uh, is is the is the issue there. And for Russia, it's literally when they run out of stuff. I mean, there's talk of them having to use. Uh, you know, do deals with Belarus and, and elsewhere, Iran maybe to get to get other ground troops in there, but it just never it doesn't come to anything. I mean, when we we heard about all these these uh, fighters from Syria, I mean months ago, do you remember this? That we're going to get all these Syrian these brigades were going to flow in from Syria. Yeah, I, mean, I haven't seen them. They haven't turned up. Um, so it's just they, they they can offer nothing. So I think I think it's going to be I think it's going to be a hard winter. I I I still wouldn't wouldn't discount a. a a significant, if small, uh, chance 
of Ukraine breaking through over the winter as the ground hardens, they're much better able to use manoeuvre warfare, as in physical movement and knitting everything together. Um, but I think I think it's going to be a hard fight through the winter, and then I, I, I can't see much changing until the until the spring. But I think the impetus and the momentum in this war is very much in Ukraine's favour. Um, and then by next summer, I reckon there'll be some very very serious questions to to be faced with, i.e., if Russia is facing imminent military defeat on the battlefield. Where, where then for this discussion about nuclear escalation, which is a you know, we've, we've dabbled with, and Putin loves to raise the spectre, he rattles that cage all the time. But I think if there is a significant chance of of battlefield defeat, um, then it's time to sort of unpack some of those arguments once again. I sort of follow up very quickly on something that Dom said about you know who would have thought we'd be where we were. I kind of want to return actually to sort of a thought from very very early on in the invasion, which was kind of this shocked reaction in Europe of. You know, just amusement that uh, that somehow there was major war again in the European continent. You know that there hadn't been for decades, and I think that will be that feeling is kind of returning again and coming back as as we in in Western Europe kind of prepare for Christmas. And you know, there's discussion about oh, energy crisis, this and that, and difficult winter for 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 us here. But you know, actually. Amazingly, you know, there's a there's a whole population in, in Ukraine that is uh, spending a, a Christmas at war, um, which is a staggering thing to say about about Europe in in 2020. And you're seeing a, a kind of a repetition of of things that we saw in in London, the city that we're we're talking from, um, decades decades ago. You know, in, in they had 1940, they had Blitzmas. You know, and people basically tried to do Christmas as normal, but they were underground in in the uh, in the tube. Um, singing Christmas carols, trying to make do so they couldn't get hold of turkey. But they had beef and mutton that had been shipped in from, from Australia and New Zealand and, and Canada and really trying to, to, to make do. The royal family did their Christmas card picture. So we've seen the, the Christmas card picture this year and it's uh, sort of taken in the summer, which is a bit odd. But uh, in 1940, the royal family took theirs in front of the bit of Buckingham Palace that had been bombed. So there was this sort of effort to, to make it normal. But yeah, it's just kind of, I think it's a moment again to, to, to just think about how insane it is that um, one man really has uh, has pushed the continent back decades really to, to something that, that I don't think most people thought they would see in their lifetimes, at least not in Europe. Thank you very much, uh, Dan Capuro. Dom Nichols, would you like the very final thoughts? Yeah, well, I think I've said all, all I need to say on the on the actual battlefield. I just want to say for those those people who have joined us this year and stayed with us, thank you thank you so much for your for your attention and for helping keep us honest and keep us straight. We've we've made a couple of uh, couple of missteps along the way but you know you've called us out on that and that's and that's great i urge you all to to please keep doing that keep taking your information from a whole wide range of sources and um we'll see you uh we'll see you over the next few days and we'll see you in 2023 but thanks very much for for joining us ahead of christmas my colleague claire hubble spoke to representatives from lumos a charity providing support to children displaced by the russian invasion of ukraine she spoke to ukraine country director galina bulat and Head of Marketing and Communications, Freya Polite. Claire started by asking Galina what Lumos are providing for children in Ukraine. Just a note, there's quite a lot of noise in the background of Galina's audio during this interview, but we hope you find it fruitful nonetheless. It's one of the consequences of the crisis. In, in the first weeks of the war, it was issued a resolution of the Ukrainian government that all children from residential institutions 
who have uh, parents uh, have to be returned to, to their families. And uh, for example, in the region we are uh, working with in Zhitomir, uh, there were uh, 1,300 uh, children who returned to families. Uh, most of them are uh, very poor families because poverty in Ukraine is one of the uh, main drivers of institutionalization of children. So uh, most of those children, uh, families, sorry, faced uh, lack of food as a, f- as a basic need and an urgent need. So uh, uh, therefore, the uh, aid or humanitarian aid we are providing consists of primarily uh, from food. But also, as you mentioned, uh, clothes, especially for children in uh, these um, collective centers for IDPs, uh, and educational materials, uh, again, for the same purpose, to have at least some uh, items to to continue to, to learn, to continue uh, education in, in different conditions, because since... Um, February uh, until May, it was uh, only exclusively distance learning. So uh, um, many of children haven't been prepared for for such uh, um, type of education. And uh, depending from one case to another one, we, for example, uh, if uh, there are babies in a family, we bought and provided special uh, meal for uh, young children uh, and many other such things, uh, hygiene items, uh, diapers, and so on. Mm. And when you speak to the children that Lumos aids, what is their understanding of what's going on in regards to the invasion? First of all, uh, we are not uh, speaking uh, directly with the children very often, only in special context, in special situations, because uh, there are uh, very um, rigorous uh, safeguarding uh, rules we have to follow. Uh, But when um, we have uh, such an opportunity I, I should say that children remain children in, in any uh, context. Uh, they are happy when, uh, when they receive uh, uh, gifts. They are, uh, they are saying that these educational materials, for example, are gifts for them. So they are happy. Also, uh, they are uh, happy to know that they will uh, have what to eat uh, for dinner or for supper and so on. Uh, but uh, at the same time, uh, we can see how um, uh, children uh, became more uh, mature or more adult uh, in, in, uh, in, in their behavior, in uh, what they are uh, saying, because they uh, started to, to speak uh, using... Uh, phrases or uh, uh, content which is more f- uh, familiar for adults, not for, for children. Uh, and uh, this is because uh, of the context, because uh, what is happening in their lives. So uh, it is said 
actually to see this because, uh, as I mentioned, uh, children should remain children in, in any situation. But unfortunately, this crisis has a huge impact on their well-being, uh, psychological uh, situation. That is why the government decided that provision of psychological uh, psychosocial support is one of the priorities. And apart from LUMOS, there are many other organizations, uh, international and local organizations, uh, uh, who, who provide the same support. Thank you. As you say, these are really unthinkable conditions for, for children to grow up in. I wonder, have there been any moments that sort of spring to mind for you that have provided lightness and an opportunity for children to, as you say, be children? Um, we are now in the process of uh, or preparing, organising a Christmas party for a group of children. It, it will uh, take place uh, next Monday. We decided to bring together a group of uh, children with uh, disabilities, uh, children from foster families uh, and children from IDPs uh, families. Uh, with uh, their, they will come with their parents uh, and or cares, and uh, there is a hope that uh, uh, this uh, Christmas party will bring uh, a little bit more uh, joy, happiness, and light in, in their life because. Uh, just to imagine that uh, for months uh, some children are spending uh, their uh, time and their lives in the collective centers or uh, in shelters uh, without uh, uh, light, without uh, water, uh, qualitative food and so on. So uh, this is a, a, a moment we are uh, thinking about now to just for, for this uh, purpose to bring uh, a little bit more light in, in their life we will um, uh, we uh, invited um, four uh, professional actors uh, from the local uh, theater they will organize some uh, activities agreement uh, uh, not agreement uh, sorry <laughs> to play, uh, to, to sing, and many other uh, such activities. Uh, uh, it, it, it will happen in a very um, uh, child-friendly space. Uh, it will be a Christmas tree there, so it will be a holiday for them. Mm, that's lovely to hear. Um, going back to what you were saying about the psychosocial training provided for pro professionals in Ukraine who are working with these vulnerable families, could you tell us a bit more about what that training looks like and what kind of tools the professionals are trying to equip these vulnerable children with in order to deal with and heal from the trauma they're subjected to? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh I mentioned about the uh, National uh, Training of Trainers uh, program. Uh, it was uh, organized uh, with the purpose to to cover uh, more, uh, to cover the national level, to cover the entire country, because uh, the needs are uh, huge, are very high. Um, many of uh, professionals uh, in the systems left Ukraine 
uh, evacuated in the first uh, uh, weeks and months uh, to save uh, their families and uh, group, large groups of uh, children remain uh, remained without any uh, support and um, uh, help so uh, and we uh, decided uh, as i mentioned together with the ministry to organize this training of trainers program they uh, these national trainers to come back to their regions to cascade uh, the training they received and in this way to to spread uh, the training and to cover more and more um, regions uh, communities and so on and uh, this uh, the training program uh, consists of uh, four um, modules uh, one would be uh, uh, how to to learn uh, psychologists uh, and social workers and uh, professionals from the child affairs uh, services, how to communicate uh, with children uh, about the crisis, uh, how to uh, uh, teach them uh, to overcome uh, trauma, how to become uh, more uh, resilient in terms of uh, psychological status and emotions, how to deal with the loss, because many children lost uh, parents or grandparents or uh, friends or relatives. And um, another module was um, to how to work with uh, parents, to teach parents how to communicate with their children or uh, um, with, the ch with the children uh, uh, from uh, neighbor families, from relative families. And uh, also was a module for teachers, uh, for schools and the uh, kindergartens uh, teachers, again, to teach them how to uh, inform, how to speak, how to communicate with the children about uh, this uh, uh, awful uh, things around them. So. We considered all the uh, groups who are involved in, in these uh, processes around children themselves, but also professionals around the children to be uh, prepared uh, to uh, support children. Uh, these uh, professionals uh, use uh, different uh, techniques, art uh, therapy, uh, mellow therapy, uh, play therapy and the uh, other uh, such uh, methods to 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 work with the children however uh, in, in in all uh, these uh, processes uh, the main problem is uh, the lack of uh, professionals i mentioned about the fact that many of uh, uh, them uh, left, fled Ukraine, uh, are uh, abroad somewhere, and uh, this uh, gap is, is, uh, is very, um, has, has very significant uh, uh, consequences on the children's uh, situation because uh, uh, there are no psychologists to, to deal with this. Uh, uh, yes, there are uh, hotlines uh, children can uh, call somebody but uh, know this uh, consistent uh, support and the ongoing support 
and uh, uh, there are um, officials uh, from the Minister of uh, Social Policy, from the Minister of Education, who are saying that probably uh, even the war will uh, end soon. There will be a, a, a big need or a huge need on uh, psychosocial support for children for many years uh, ahead because of the trauma they are suffering now. I can imagine. Um, obviously, we speak to various people all the time, both in Ukraine, but also from neighbouring countries, people who've left Ukraine. So sort of reflecting the different issues. One lady, um, so Elena, was heavily pregnant when she left Ukraine from Moldova earlier this year with her four daughters. Her husband, Vasily, stayed behind to look after Elena's mother. Um, and shortly after crossing the border, Elena gave birth to a little boy, Bogdan. They could carry little with them and had nothing for the new baby at all. But so in this situation, Lumos supported the family, providing clothes and a pram for baby Bogdan. And Bogdan has since been able to meet his father in person and the family are starting a new life together far away from their original home. So, you know, that was a sort of positive ending, but obviously from a very sad situation. We then um, can mention a, a woman, Ivana, um, who was a grandmother and she left Kharkiv um, for Jotomir with her three granddaughters aged uh, just 15, 10 and 5. The girl's parents had to stay behind to work. Um, at the beginning of the war, the family slept in the school's bomb shelter as their house was bombed. It was ve really very cold. The children are still very frightened. Even now, when the siren sounds, the five-year-old runs to the bomb shelter and cries, tell the man to stop shooting. The family had planned to go home, but when infrastructure began to be destroyed, they had to change their plans. So Lumos has supported Ivana and her granddaughters with food, clothing and psychological support. And Ivana describes Lumos's help as heating up our souls. Then we have a, um, a situation from Sophia, who's just 17. Um, she's the oldest of five children. And she lives in the same home as when the war began at the moment. But her education has been severely disrupted by the war. Her education is crucial for her. She wanted to study biology at university and then teach or work in a laboratory. But she says that she doesn't know her future anymore. Lumos has been supporting the family by providing educational resources as well as vital supplies such as food and hygiene items. Money is very tight and Sophia's dad lost his job when the war began and her mother Vera earns a low salary. Vera says, because of Lumos's support, we can now survive. And then we have um, Alina, who is a mother of two young daughters and they have moved four times since the start of the war, fleeing, bombing and explosions. Before the war, Alina was a nurse, but now she is unable to work as there is no one to stay at home with her children. They, they depend on help from organisations like Lumos to survive, particularly because they live in a more rural area. The children are studying online, but sometimes it can take all day as the electricity keeps dropping out. Yeah, uh, maybe one... Uh more fact that we are uh, cooperating and partnering with many other uh, international organizations. We are a member of uh, international platforms such as BetaK Network, uh, also uh, Ukraine, um, uh, Ukraine group uh, under BetaK Network. Uh, uh, 
clusters uh, created by uh, OCHA in Ukraine in education and child protection. And we are uh, using these uh, platforms to share our uh, principles, our values, to uh, to engage international uh, community in making uh, everything is possible to keep children together with their parents, to prevent uh, um, families break, break down to prevent uh, increase in uh, institutionalization of children because it is very well known that in times of crisis uh, uh, the numbers of uh, institutionalized uh, children increase. So uh, we are uh, doing uh, a lot of advocacy work, uh, not only uh, not only providing uh, food in Ukraine, but uh, on the other side uh, uh, doing this advocacy work to as I mentioned, to engage the international community in um, uh, not losing uh, children from their agenda, uh, from the recovery processes, because maybe you know that uh, Ukraine announced uh, the renewal of Ukraine program. There are different uh, plans in different domains. So we are uh, fighting to, to keep focus on children and children's rights. Um, now, I'm sure our listeners will be wondering if there's a way that we can help Lumos. What, what's the most effective way for them to do that? The best way to support us really is to, to go onto our website and see how to get involved. We are running a, an appeal over the Christmas period um, for funds which will support our work all over the, all over the world. But we also have a, an appeal for our work in Ukraine. Um, we obviously need funds to do the vital work that we do and to support children. Um, so we're always looking for support for that. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate your input and don't uh, lose touch with us. We'd love to hear more about your really important work. Thank you. Thank you very much for giving this uh, opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. And sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message, and we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Claire Hubble. Hi listeners, David Knowles here. Uh, just to say, Francis and I have left Telegraph Towers, our office in Victoria for the last time uh, this side of Christmas, heading back to our respective homes uh, over the Christmas period. Uh, as you know, the next week we won't be having the live um, episodes on Monday or Tuesday, but we will be having special uh, pre-recorded episodes uh, on uh, the life and times of Taras Shevchenko, uh, Ukraine's possibly, possibly Ukraine's most famous poet, artist and writer. And we just wanted to say thank you for listening over the past year. It's 
been a year that I don't think any of us expected. Um, but we hope we've we hope we've done, we've done our absolute best. We think in terms of bringing you the news, bringing you the best analysis we can. Um, we've emerged obviously from this, these offices and the sort of revolving doors. Everything's light and uh, heated, and come into the street and we can see people with their bags as they head home for for the holidays, uh, surrounded by lit up office buildings and traffic rolling past. And we're just just aware that this is not the case, obviously, for many of our listeners, especially in Ukraine. And we just wanted to say. We are thinking of you Anna, over this Christmas period and really hope you can have the best Christmas possible. And yeah, just, just want you to know that we're thinking of you and we'll be back in the, after Christmas and in, then sort of properly in the new year to carry on our work. And thank you very much for all of your messages and uh, if you celebrate, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas from a very wintry London. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.